0: You find yourself needing to learn more about D&D. What do you do? I cast pawn. Welcome to Icast Pod, a D&D podcast about creating characters, taking chances, rolling dice, and having fun. I'm Mike, your DM and guide to all things dungeon-esque and dragony. In this, our second bonus episode, we're going to look into a brief history of D&D. Now in its fifth edition, Dungeons & Dragons is experiencing a resurgence into popular culture, in large part due to the internet and live streaming shows such as Critical Role, Acquisitions Incorporated and Force Grey, as well as thousands of other live play shows, streams, YouTube channels and podcasts. It has spawned countless other games, influenced most of the forms of entertainment we enjoy in some form or another, and brought to the world the concept of levelling up. Without it, there'd be no World of Warcraft, or video games like The Witcher 3, and the entire field of gamification might never have arisen to help us enjoy our to-do lists. D&D has become a cornerstone of geek culture. It wasn't always so popular though. In fact, during the 80s, it was positively vilified but we'll get to that later. Join me now as I delve into the sprawling corridors of history to discover what d is and how it came about. First we need to travel back to 1971 before even your wizened and grey-bearded host was born, to a game called Chainmail that was written by Gary Gygax and Jeff Perrin. Gary was a long-time miniature wargame veteran, the type still played by military buffs around the globe today as well as Warhammer and its variants. Essentially, you have an army represented by miniature figures. You enact or reenact battles by maneuvering the army around the playing field using rulers and resolve battles by rolling dice with the help of a referee. Gary saw that there was a potential in expanding the rules of wargaming which he felt could be constricting. In addition, Gary wanted to get away from using only six-sided dice, as there was an inherent bell curve when rolling two of them. Twos and twelves were rare rolls, whereas sixes, sevens and eights were more common due to the increased combinations of numbers that can result in them. Gary initially used numbered poker chips 1 to 20 to ensure a 5% chance of getting any particular number. Later, he found a school supply catalogue that had dice shaped like all the platonic solids including the now famous Icosahedron, a 20-sided die that will forever be known as the D20, thanks to D&D. Chainmail Between 1968 and 1971, Gary and his friend Jeff Perrin worked on what would become 16 pages of rules for a new type of game. They called it Chainmail. It differed from traditional war games in two major ways. First, some of the miniatures instead of representing multiple units were instead known as hero units that could withstand much more punishment than ordinary units. Secondly, just for fun, rules were included for magical fantasy settings, things like wizards, spells, elves and dragons. Gary was a big fan of Robert E. Howard's Conan series and hoped to bring some of the swashbuckling adventure to tabletop gaming. In 1971, Chainmail was published by a games company started by a friend of Gary's. It was the company's biggest hit, making around $300 per month. Dave Arneson Dave Arneson, having already collaborated on a high-seas naval combat game with Gary, modified Chainmail further to include improvisatory play and moved the setting to a dungeon in order to make games easier to deal with. Dave also added an experience system necessitated by his player groups wanting to play games that spanned multiple sessions. Characters now earned experience points based on what they do in the game. Earn enough points and the character goes up a level. Dave also took a different approach to being the game's referee too. Instead of just acting as an arbitrator of the rules, he also performed as a kind of guide to the dungeon and the world itself, describing the scenery and encounters. Gary and Dave agreed to collaborate again after talking about what Dave's group were up to, with Gary trying to codify new rules from Dave's notes and during long phone calls. There were four races in the original edition, human, elves, hobbits and dwarves. Classes were constructed, originally consisting of just fighting man, magic user and cleric, each with lists of mathematical attributes that were used during play like intelligence, constitution strength and so on. The list of available weapons stretched too to include many new bladed, blunt and spiky things. The attributes in particular enhanced the playing of a character. A low intelligence score might literally spell disaster for a wizard but isn't going to stop a warrior swinging a sword and those same attributes could also feed into playing the role. A player could easily act out their version of a character with low intelligence. TSR. By 1973, Gary had shopped the game around publishers, but no one could ever seem to see the potential for a game that had no winner and didn't really end. So he set up his own company, Tactical Studies Rules, with a childhood friend, Don Kay, who had helped Gary playtest the game. Dave Arneson wasn't asked to join the fledgling company, as he and Gary didn't exactly see eye to eye on many things. He was just having fun playing the game. The company managed to raise $2,400 and got to work. In January of 1974, the first 1,000 copies of the three booklet set were printed, ready for sale at $10. A set of dice cost $3.50 extra. As with so many brands that came out of the 60s and 70s, TSR at this point is run from Gary's basement. There was no budget for marketing but word of mouth proved to be D&D's success, spreading through hobby shops, colleges and schools, and in 10 short months, TSR sold out of D&D booklets. Shortly thereafter, the advanced version booklet came out in 1977, adding many new features, including new classes Assassin, Bard, Druid, Illusionist, Monk, Paladin, Ranger and Thief. The first Monster Manual was also released. The Player's Handbook came along in 1978, and The Dungeon Master's Guide in 1979. Pre-packaged adventures followed, written by Gary, Dave Arneson and others. But the real beauty of D&D, the thing that still attracts players and DMs to it now, is that D&D had scope for people to build their own adventures from scratch, even their own worlds, and all of them can be explored, fought for and looted. The Satanic Panic In the late 70s and into the early 80s, America was gripped by the satanic panic which vilified anything seen as satanic including heavy metal music, video nasties and D&D. Around this time, the media was circulating rumours of satanic cults performing ritual child abuse centred at the time around alleged abuse of children by teachers and other adults in positions of authority. In 1979, a student named James Dallas Egbert III disappeared from his college in Michigan and rumours circulated that he had been killed as part of a real-life D&D game in the steam tunnels under his college. James had been something of a prodigy, so no one could think of a reason why he would just disappear. William Deer, a private investigator from Dallas, worked on the case by trying to get into James' mindset. He found a seemingly meaningful arrangement of thumbtacks on James's corkboard and studied the D&D manuals for clues. The only other clue left by James was a note stating that if his body was found, it was to be cremated. The handwriting on the note did not match James's. William believed that the path to finding James could be found through studying D&D, even paying to play games to get a better understanding of the game and by extension the mindset of a player. Deer was interviewed multiple times during the course of the investigation and was even quoted using the attributes from the game, saying that James did not possess strength and charisma but inte- intelligence and dexterity, yes, and the media ran with it eventually. James called Deer, who went to visit him in a dilapidated hotel in a bad part of the town he'd escaped to, on the condition that Deer told no one where he had been since he'd disappeared. James told him his story in fact. James had left Michigan after a failed suicide attempt due to depression stemming from a troubled home life and the fact that he hadn't come out as gay to his parents, which would have been an even bigger deal back then. He'd also started using drugs and alcohol as a way to cope. He planned to commit suicide in the steam tunnels which students had used for playing, partying and having sex in, but had been unable to go through with it. He'd written a note with his left hand to throw people off and had spent some time couch surfing, staying with friends and eventually hitched a ride south. James was reunited with his parents, and Deer kept his word and told no one about James's story. Deer visited James at his parents' house on occasion. Sadly, about a year after being found and returning home to his parents, James finally did commit suicide. Deer finally told James's story in full, five years after he'd died in a book that detailed not only his problematic home life, but also James's issues with depression, drugs and alcohol. But far be it for the media to let the facts get in the way of a good story. They had another in a long line of scapegoats for society's ills in D&D. The story that a kid had been killed while playing was already widespread. It was obvious that D&D was evil to its accusers, It promoted witchcraft and demon worship, and the evidence was clear. The booklets contained spells and incantations, and there was talk of demons within its pages. A 1981 novel called Mazes and Monsters, presumably for copyright reasons, told a tale of a youth who became so enamoured with a fictional version of the game that he could no longer tell what was real anymore. It was based loosely on the story of Egbert's disappearance. It was later developed into a film starring a young Tom Hanks. Another parent formed a group called BADD, bothered about Dungeons and Dragons, after she claimed her son shot himself in the chest after receiving a curse in the game. It's interesting to note that a similar thing happened more recently with the Harry Potter franchise, with certain sections of society branding it evil and dangerous for similar reasons, and the media regurgitating the story to the public. No one ever seems to make mention of the fact that the heroes in these works are busy fighting the demons and evil forces, much like in most of the heroic works of fiction dating back to the epic of Gilgamesh, the earliest known work of literature, and works like Homer's The Odyssey and the Iliad. TSR makes bank. For now. By 1982, TSR was boasting sales of between 16 and 22 million dollars, sources vary. If anything, the satanic panic helped profits with the free publicity and TSR could barely keep up with demand but trouble was on the horizon. In in attempting to branch out with the franchise Gary stepped back from games design to lead TSR's entertainment division and moved to California. He had some success. In 1983 CBS aired the Dungeons & Dragons animated TV show which helped with publicity but by the mid 80s The company was in trouble. Things go downhill. The Bloom brothers, who were fellow board members, managed the company into the ground in Gary's absence. The company had bought 70 plus company cars and spent around 1.5 million on office furniture. When Gary came back, TSR was 1.5 million in debt. By 1984 TSR had made hundreds of layoffs but profit projections still looked bleak so they turned to Lorraine Williams the mother of a writer Gary had met in Hollywood and who had management experience to run the company. Williams proceeded to buy out the Bloom brothers and in 1985 Gary was ousted from the board no longer having a controlling share of the company. He sold his remaining stake the same year. It was during this time that Dave Arneson sued TSR for an undisclosed sum after relations with Gary soured around sharing credit for the game. Going forward, Dave's name would feature alongside Gary's as co-creator. And so it goes. TSR continued for 12 years after Gygax left, but had fallen behind its competition by the mid-90s. Eventually, TSR was acquired by Wizards of the Coast in 1997 and the TSR name was dropped from D&D products by 2000. More editions followed but were mostly sidelined by video games like World of Warcraft which were not only based on D&D but often made by people who were fans of D&D. Up to date The 5th edition was released in 2014 which soon hit Amazon's bestseller list and the uphill crawl got taken up by streamers, leading to where we are today, an internet full of d and shows, how-to videos, podcasts like this one, as well as merch, fan art, and more. Gary Gygax died in 2008 at 69, and Dave Arneson died in 2009 at 61, but their legacy lives on every time we roll an icosahedron.